the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. Oftentimes in America, when we think about the issue of slavery, it's been not only a huge black eye on America's reputation going back into her history, but also a point of pride. Pride in the sense that come the mid to later 1800s, we finally came to the conclusion that slavery was not a good thing. It was something that deservedly needed to be abolished. And while there's many arguments to suggest that we're still sort of recuperating from the impact of multiple generations of slavery in America going back into the 1800s, those that would think that with the abolishment of slavery in America that ended slavery, period, would be sorely and sadly mistaken. In fact, while slavery in the fashion that we're familiar with from a historical viewpoint may not exist in that truest form, other forms of slavery not only abound today, both here in the United States, but even domestically, and it has become a multi-billion dollar industry. As we dive into the sad, murky details of slavery going on and human trafficking, I'll warn you that some segments of our conversation in this portion of Lifeline may not be appropriate for young years. So if you have children about, you may want to busy them elsewhere. As we engage in conversation with a special guest tonight, he has served as an undercover investigator and outlines his experiences inside of a new book called God in a Brothel, an Undercover Journey into Sex Trafficking and Rescue. And Daniel Walker, thanks so much for being with us on the program. Oh, thanks for having me. This is a topic that I suppose to to the average Westerner, the average American, uh, is probably shocked to find out that this even goes on. I mean, to be sure, we know that in big cities all over America, just as they are in in many parts of the world, there is one level or another of prostitution. But when we get into the topic of sex trafficking and slavery, this is bigger, darker, and more insidious than perhaps most people could even imagine. Yeah, certainly that was the biggest shock for me, uh, not only how easy it was to find uh, all around the world, but the magnitude of it, and uh, that there are more people in slavery in our generation than at any other time in history uh, does boggle the mind. I mean, more people in slavery, as you've said, than, uh, than when slavery was alive in this country, than when William Wilberforce was fighting the transatlantic slave trade. Indeed, more slavery today than when Moses led the slaves out of Egypt. Uh, all those years ago, um, and uh, and the nature of it, of course, is the only thing that's that's different. There aren't people standing on street corners with chains around their ankles. They are largely hidden behind closed doors, uh, and uh, the fastest growing form of modern day slavery is is uh, the trafficking of of women and children. Is this what allows it to flourish the way it has, becoming, as you suggest, Daniel, a multi-billion dollar global industry because so much of it takes place uh, either under the cover of darkness or behind closed doors? Yeah, I think it is. I mean, I think if uh, 
I'm confident that uh, if people were still being sold on our street corners uh, and uh, the chains were visible around their ankles, uh, we would do something about it. And the church primarily would uh, would answer its call to to be the organisation, the leading group of people who have a mandate and a mission uh, to set people free from everything that enslaves them, whether that's uh, personal sin or whatever sucks the life out of us, but also literal slavery. But yeah, like you said, we we don't see it. It's uh, it's behind closed doors. It's often behind fronts for other businesses. Uh, but we need to see it. And I guess that's why I wanted to write this book, so that people would be able to see what I saw during uh, four years uh, behind those doors. Do we need to be clear in articulating for the benefit of the audience, Daniel, that when we talk about sex trafficking, it's not singularly the issue of of prostitution. Uh, We often think about prostitutes as a woman who who volunteers it because maybe there's a sense of desperation. She gets pulled into the lifestyle. Maybe she has been solicited into this lifestyle as making money at it. But generally, I think most of us in the West kind of get the sense that any time a woman wanted to really step out of that lifestyle, they would have the opportunity to do so. Um, We're talking about something here that when you apply the word slavery to sex trafficking, you you literally mean women and in some cases children that are pulled into this against their will and literally are are locked in no different than a slave would be in the traditional sense. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, There's a lot of deception uh, involved and false lies and promises that are used to lure uh, young women and, as you've said, children into this industry. But uh, yeah, make no mistake, it is slavery in the extreme and uh, one of the first cases I came across was um, in the company of a a US Special Forces soldier actually who uh, was operating in that part of the world and he uh, liked what we were doing he said you know I'll come along and provide you some security and I said that would be great Uh, absolutely so he came with me to this uh, location and the the pimp uh, took us into a a, a small uh, brothel and uh, he brought in two 14 year old girls uh, I was recording the transaction with a covert camera. Uh, we paid some cash to uh, return at some future date to have sex with them. And so we were gathering evidence that could be used under local law in that place uh, to re- rescue those uh, girls and, and facilitate the prosecution of the perpetrators. Uh, and so this soldier, you know, he looked at me like, OK, you know, are we good to go? And I knew from the intelligence we'd received that there were even younger uh, children available in that place and so I said ah you know these these girls are a bit old for me and this pimp he uh, he winked and smiled and he said wait there and he disappeared and he came back into the room and he had two little girls who were about six years old and uh, they had pigtails and teddy bears on their t-shirts and uh, this, um, this soldier he shut down at that point he went quiet and uh, nothing you know he's a guy that's been there and done that but nothing had prepared him for uh two little six-year-old girls being offered to him for 30 US dollars an hour for for whatever he wanted to do to them basically and uh, you know at that point I took over I taught Sunday school in my youth and I got them to sit on my knee and uh, as far as the pimp was concerned I was the perfect sleaze but I was getting them up close to the camera capturing their faces and their names and as much information as I could about where they came from Uh, and then we we then paid uh, for some future transaction when we would return, and we did return, but we didn't come back with customers, we came back with police, and they they raided that place, they arrested the perpetrators, and we rescued those kids. 
You have a background, of course, in uh, police and investigative work. How did you initially get get pulled into investigating this of uh, the most insidious of crimes? Well, I think right from when I first became a Christian, actually, uh, as a very young man, I, I um, was in my teens doing the the 40-hour famine, uh, as it's called in New Zealand. I think you have a 30-hour famine in the U.S. Um, and we were sent the publicity material about what the money was going for that year, and it was talking about these children as young as 13, 14, who were selling themselves on the streets. And my younger sister was 13 at the time. And, uh, you know, I, I grew up with Charles Dickens, Oliver Twist, and so on. I, I just thought this was something of an of an age gone by and so to discover that it was more rife than ever in our large cities around the world and uh, I, I prayed a dangerous prayer I guess I, um, God if you can use me uh, one day to do something about this uh, here I am and uh, I subsequently heard Tony Campolo a motivational speaker talk about a, a program that he and uh, Ron Sider who wrote uh, Rich Christians in an Age of Hunger uh, had put together to train young people basically to go into these places around the world and um, uh, break the, poverty, the cycles of poverty and oppression. Uh, and um, after uh, working in the New Zealand police for about 10 or 11 years, I heard about a number of organisations that were then using the skills of um, uh, police officers, investigators, lawyers and so on to get this kind of evidence which was being used to set people free. So I um, seized the opportunity. And of course, in doing so, you've now invested a lifetime, not just in investigating the cases from an undercover investigative standpoint, but also helping to literally capture and, and release many of these, uh, both women and children that have been pulled into slavery. Yes, yeah, uh, it was amazing for me. I, I went into one brothel and um, the woman lined up as they do, and uh, they were from Korea, Japan, Thailand, uh, Philippines, Latin America. And uh, I chose uh, Jenny, who, who was from Korea, and uh, took her into the bedroom. I then made up some excuse as to why I wasn't going to have sex with her and just uh, started to talk with her and just ask the question. So, you know, where are you from? What's your real name? Uh, why, why can't you leave? Why have they got your passport? And who is it that, that receives money from this place? And um, uh, the amazing thing for me was that... Um, well, Jenny said she had travelled all the way from Korea. She'd been promised a legitimate job. And uh, when she arrived at the location, her passport was taken, she was raped, and she was told that if she ever tried to leave, uh, not only would she be uh, brutalized further, uh, but her family and her little sister and her little brother back home, she would never see them again. And uh, so often the chains that hold these women are um, chains of terror, and uh, it's, it is organized crime that, um, that in many cases keep them there. The amazing thing for me was that this brothel was not in Southeast Asia. Uh, it was not in Latin America or Eastern Europe. I mean, Jenny was being held captive in, a, in the suburbs of the United States of America. Mm. Daniel Walker, our guest, a look at his new book, God in a Brothel, an undercover journey into sex trafficking and rescue. We'll take a brief time out, come back to more of our conversation as this edition of Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. 
Welcome back to this edition of Lifeline. Craig Roberts along with our guest tonight, Daniel Walker. Daniel is an undercover investigator who's detailed his experiences inside of a new book, interesting title I might add, God in a Brothel, An Undercover Journey into Sex Trafficking and Rescue. Daniel, you were mentioning just before the break on this topic of human sex trafficking and slavery that's taking place around the globe today, that as much as we occasionally might hear of these stories, investigative television programs, we'll talk about, for example, uh, sex tourism to countries like Vietnam and Thailand. But this idea of, of sex slavery, particularly with children suffering it, is not something that is limited uniquely to Uh, parts of the world like Asia, but even here in the United States, where are they getting these children, and how is it that the operators of these brothels, and I'm assuming most all under the purveyance of organized crime, are able to operate below the radar screen? Yeah, well, that's a very good question, and I guess uh, in part it's because of the nature of the the business. Um, It's often hidden behind other fronts, uh, the women and children involved are uh, often uh, manipulated and uh, terrorized uh, to a tremendous degree. They're told that if the authorities become involved, they themselves will be arrested and charged with either being illegal or um, for prostitution-related offenses, uh, or that things will be done to their families and friends back home. So fear, intimidation are big factors in all of this. Oh, of course. Yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, absolutely. Uh I mean, in some, I've heard of some cases where uh, if a gang uh, requires 10 women in a certain location, they will bring 11 women, and they'll go to the top of the tall building, and they'll push one of those women off, and then they'll turn to the other 10 and say, this is what will happen to you if you ever talk or if you ever try and leave. Uh, a financial, a heavy financial debt is imposed. They're basically told, you know, you have this debt to pay off. Until you pay off this debt, uh, you cannot leave. And, um, you know, I, I met um, uh, Maria, who at the age of uh, 15, well, actually 13 when she first was uh, pulled into this brothel, but at the age of 15, uh, she was trafficked, and she was told, you have to pay off this debt. And um, she ran away. She ran to the uh, local police. This was in uh, Central America. Uh, she ran to the local police. The police took her straight back to the brothel because they provided protection. Hmm. Uh, and the, the officers got freebies with any of the girls whenever they wanted it. Uh, she ran away again, and she ran further and harder. She ran to the army, and the army took her to the border and said, you know, you're illegal, get out of the country. Uh, the very, she ran into the hands of the very same group of coyotes or traffickers who took her straight back to that brothel. So when I found her uh, on this little dance floor in, in Latin America, she had absolutely no recourse to justice. Actually, Maria was one of my first cases, and I hadn't been doing the work very long, and... Um, uh, I was afraid. I was afraid of my own humanity, my my own sinful nature. I was well aware how fickle uh, men can be. It, unlike some men, I guess it was only after becoming a Christian that I started to frequent brothels in this manner and uh, to gather evidence. But uh, you know, I was still very aware of uh, my sinful nature and and didn't really know, you know, what's going to happen when I walk into these places. I, I was afraid of the bad guys with guns and the uh, the organised crime that um, that. Uh, protected those places and I was also afraid of evil you know I perceived these buildings and uh, where women and children were devoured and enslaved as enemy enemy territory that I was going into and actually it was Maria that pulled me onto the dance floor I, I'd captured the evidence I'd already recorded the brothel owner selling Maria to me so I was eager to leave but Maria was much more intent on seducing me and and she was afraid she would get in trouble if she didn't so 
we're standing on this dance floor of this little brothel and uh, it was with some desperation that I, I prayed, you know, God help me get out of here. Uh, but as I did so, everything changed. And I suddenly saw Maria not as a threat to my personal purity or professionalism, but as a child of God and whose life evil had been so allowed to consume and devour. And I was filled with this um, overwhelming sense of hatred, holy hatred for evil and this anger, this burning anger at our indifferent world that so allows its children to be bought and sold. And in that moment, the, the still small voice whispered in my ear, greater is he. Mm. that is in you than he that is in the world and I suddenly re realized that I was the one who was in possession of enough evidence to send all of the bad guys in that place to jail and to facilitate the rescue of all of the women and children in there if anyone was dangerous it was me and if anyone needed to fear it was actually the bad guys and then the hymn of an old hymn uh, the, uh, the words of an old hymn that I'd sung in my own childhood this is my father's world came to my mind and again I just realized um, as I prayed on this little dance floor uh, dance for this little brothel that God was in that place long before I arrived suffering with those who suffer and witnessing Maria's defilement waiting for someone to show up in his name to set her free and that he would remain there long after I left and so I guess on that little brothel uh, in Central America I felt commissioned you know do not be afraid in fact go boldly to places such as these because my children are suffering there here in America, are many of the girls uh, brought in from foreign countries as well that are effectively given promises of, of freedom in America but have to, of course, pay back uh, the coyotes that bring them across the border into the country? Or is there also a percentage of these, Daniel, that are here because they're in, involved in human sex slavery because they're runaways? Uh, both, yes, absolutely. Um, uh some estimates say that between 18 and 20,000 women are trafficked into the United States every year from Eastern Europe and Asia, Latin America. Uh, but of course the largest majority are American women and children who are trafficked uh, between states and across state lines um, and within, uh, within states. Uh, you know, the most horrifying statistic, I guess, is that there are uh, 2 million children every day around the world are sold into prostitution. And of that 2 million... 100,000 are in the United States of America. And the average age that a child enters uh, prost uh, prostitution or is sold into, manipulated, pulled into, enslaved into this industry is 13 years old. Is much of the operation globally all under the control of organized crime? Uh, you know, it's both. I mean, there's both ends of the spectrum. There are... Um, uh, very powerful groups and I've been into these uh, factories that are the size of literally they are factories huge concrete buildings surrounded by men with two-way radios where inside I found more than a hundred women all of whom were being held against their will all of whom and once I spoke to them in the, in the back bedrooms uh, and they understood that I was possibly a way out they, they you know in hushed whispers and with tears and desperation begged me uh, for rescue and then at the other end of the spectrum, you have the, the poor, you know, mother and father who, um, because of poverty or whatever other reason, a relative comes to the village and promises the, uh, the daughter an income, or the son in some cases, an income that they could send back to the, to the village. And out of desperation, out of poverty, they agree to allow their child to go. And of course, it's not selling food or, or making clothes. 
it's uh, ultimately in a brothel. That Absolutely. A lot of those cases, aren't they, where they're coming in from rural areas and villages into the quote-unquote big city to find employment, that oftentimes they are lured in, are they not? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, and that's part of the deception. I mean, trafficking is very simply uh, deception and coercion. There's, there's a, an element of deception or lies about what is, uh, is involved. Um, and uh, so the person, in many cases, willingly goes with the consent of, of the family and so on. But upon arrival at the destination, their passports are, or papers are taken, they're put into a brothel and, and uh, uh, sold uh, initially, typically for a large amount because they're a young virgin, um, and then uh, uh, for lesser amounts. But uh, the, the debt that they have to pay off is, is imposed on them. And uh, as I say, these, these um, uh, terror, they, they live in literal terror. If you've just joined our conversation, our visit on this edition of Lifeline with an undercover police officer, Daniel Walker, we're talking about his new book, God in a Brothel, an undercover journey into sex trafficking and rescue. We'll take a brief time out, come back with more of this look at Dark Side of Humanity as this edition of Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Welcome back to this edition of Lifeline. Craig Roberts along with our guest, Daniel Walker. Daniel is an undercover investigator and details his experiences into the insidious, dark, evil world of sex trafficking and slavery in a new book that's been newly published by InterVarsity Press entitled God in a Brothel, An Undercover Journey into Sex Trafficking and Rescue. Daniel, in the years that you have worked to help rescue these women, sometimes men, many children, both uh, here in the United States and internationally, what is your perception of the problem? As we talk more about this in a public fashion, as organizations are being created to not only raise awareness but try to uh, assist uh, police authorities in bringing the criminals responsible for sex sex, uh, trafficking to justice, do you get the impression the situation or the problem is getting any better or is it getting worse? No, I think it's getting worse. Uh, some uh, estimates say that in the next 10 years, the commercial sexual exploitation and sale of women and children will become the number one earner for organized criminal groups, surpassing the sale of drugs. Uh, it, as you said, a $32 billion U.S. industry at the moment. But unlike uh, drugs, which you, know, you sell once and they're gone, you get a child from when she's five and you sell her multiple times a day until she's in her 20s or gets AIDS and dies. Uh, the, the profits are astronomical and uh, the penalties are often less for selling women and children than they are for selling drugs. So, uh, no, the, um, this industry is growing, it's booming. And, um, and again, that's why I wrote the book, so that uh, in the hope that people would see what I saw, and in particular that the church would respond as uh, one of uh, the best positioned organizations in the world. Uh, we're, we're in pretty much every community where this goes on. Uh, in, ver- in very many cases, um, uh, church and parachurch organizations, they know uh, what is going on or at least have people within their community, their faith community. They often have all the assets, all the available skills necessary. There's, there's an investigator, there's a lawyer, a business person, a communications person, and they just need to make that connection between 
this God who came to set a, a human race free from slavery. You know, it's, it's as old as the Garden of Eden, uh, right through to, to Moses leading people out of literal slavery, through to the great abolitionist who uh, who came to set us free from everything that, that sucks the life out of us. And uh, I think at a time when there are more people involved, more people enslaved than ever before, if, if we as the church are silent and not actively engaged, then we cannot say with any credibility that we represent the Redeemer, the Savior, the one who came to set us free. If the church on this topic, Daniel, remains silent, uh, disinterested and distant from the topic, it seems to be something that, that's ugly, it's vile, it's evil, uh, something that perhaps uh, we'd rather not talk about in so-called polite uh, company. How how bad is it? Give me a snapshot, if you would, for someone who is hearing this topic discussed frankly and openly, maybe for the first time, and they're staring at dis- in disbelief at their radio receiver right now, thinking, I can't imagine I'm even hearing a conversation about slavery and underage sex trafficking taking place on a Christian radio station. Walk us through the profile of one of the children that you have dealt with and how bad things can get if we don't get engaged, if we don't step in to make a difference. Oh, well, um, I guess uh, I can tell you about a pimp that I met a, a couple of streets away from uh, where Martin Luther King wrote his, um, his uh, famous passages about freedom and, uh, and having a dream for this country, the United States of America, where people would live in, in freedom and uh, it would be a country of justice. And uh, he was a pimp in uh, the streets of Atlanta, Georgia, and he was telling me how easy it is to walk into pretty much any mall in the United States. And he said within a very short space of time, he could identify young girls who were vulnerable. Uh, and they came from all walks of life, not just poor and, and uh, uh, girls and boys, but... Um, or runaways, but also from wealthy families. And he said, uh, I said, how did you do it? You know, I was pretending to be uh, enamored by his ability. And he said, oh, it's easy. I sell dreams. I just sell them dreams that any seduces and enslaves with his, with his sweet-smelling lies, uh, which ultimately, of course, become nightmares. And, um, yeah, as I said uh, earlier, it, it's not just in the brothels and, and back rooms of uh, Southeast Asia, but in the in the bedrooms, in the, in the uh, massage parlors, in the back uh, rooms of office buildings uh, all across the United States, there are women and children who are being held against their will. And, uh, yeah, I guess um, for those who are wondering whether this is indeed something that the church should be engaged in, um, you know, I guess in, in the United States I hear a lot of talk about being a believer. Uh, and Jesus himself said, you know, that being a believer is not enough. Uh, you know that so so what you believe that Jesus is the Son of God, big deal. You know even even the demons believe that. Mm-hmm. Uh, that it's about. Uh, you know he goes on to say religion, as, as it says in James. You know religion that God our Father accepts as pure is to look after orphans and widows in their distress, to rescue orphans and widows in their distress. And in fact, uh, as you know, Jesus reserved his harshest words for the religious of his day and said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father. And, and throughout the Old and New Testament, he makes it very clear um, that his will is to set people free from whatever enslaves them. And, you know, in the Christian church, we talk about knowing God, and that is indeed the heart of our message, that we 
are known and that we can know God. And the prophet Jeremiah uh, 22.16, he defended the cause or rescued the cause of the poor and the oppressed. In other words, he rescued people from slavery. Is that not what it means to know me, says the Lord? So I guess the challenge is, you know, if, if we're not aware of this and we're not somehow engaged, then can we really say that we know him at all? There's a lot of talk about legalization of prostitution, even in San Francisco, um, under our um, former district attorney, Terrence Hallinan. They had gone to simply not enforcing the law, and if the police arrested both prostitutes and or Johns, uh, would drop them down off of the jail, they would be out in less than 24 hours, and the district attorney's office simply did not prosecute, considering this a so-called victimless crime. If, in fact, there is any level of success at the push toward so-called legalization of prostitution, does that somehow make this any better? You know, from my experience, um, well, I I do want to say that uh, I think it is wrong to criminalize small children, you know, 13, 14 years old, who often end up uh, under the control of a a pimp who is effectively, he's a criminal, he's a slave master. And so often it's these uh, 13 and 14-year-old girls, 15-year-old girls who are being uh, arrested. And um, thankfully there is some great training in law enforcement around the world and in this country uh, to encourage law enforcement officers to look beneath the surface and to ask those questions so that they, um, they do and can identify that actually the people with the power and the people that are making the money out of this crime are, you know, 99% of the time not the uh, the small girls involved it's actually the the pimps and in some cases the very organized pimps and and organizations that put them on the street uh, and of course it's the men who uh, who prey on them and use them so if if it has to be criminalized then then uh, you know law enforcement is slowly moving toward and recognizing that they need to criminalize the uh, the buyers and the sellers not the most vulnerable person in the transaction uh, but it, you know what, I've, I've been in countries where it's uh, legal and where it's illegal. And it largely, um, from my experience, has been irrelevant. In both of those countries, there are still women and children who are forced. It's still exploitation then, no matter how you slice it, even if the government somehow codifies it and says, okay, we're going to look the other way and consider this uh, not to be something that we'll prosecute on, as in the case of San Francisco, or simply legalize it, does not erase or modify the fact that it's still exploitation. Am I right? Oh, absolutely. I mean, uh, you know, in Amsterdam, where it's widely known around the world that it's uh, legal, Uh, a huge percentage... um, uh, I was told recently, but it's escaped my memory, but a huge percentage of those women who are on display behind those glass windows in Amsterdam are still victims of human trafficking. And, um, yeah, I guess uh, there is so much division, or can be a huge potential for division when it comes to do we legalize it, do we criminalize it. I guess what I um, have found is that what we can all agree on and what we can, you know, whether it's Republican, Democrat, conservative, liberal, we can all sit around the table and agree and work together and agree that women and children should not be forced into this industry and they should not be sold as slaves. And that's something that we can be united about. And whatever end of the political spectrum or whatever our views, uh, you know, we can all get together and agree that in the extreme form, these little five- and six-year-old girls that I have carried out of brothels around the world, uh, that that should not be happening. And even if they're 14, 15, 16-year-old American girls, who are under the control of a pimp who has so enslaved them mentally, psychologically, 
physically, emotionally, spiritually, uh, that they need us to gather around them and to, and to do what we can to set them free. Amen. And that the church should not turn a deaf ear or a blind eye to the situation. The book is called God in a Brothel, an undercover journey into sex trafficking and rescue. Newly published by InterVarsity Press, and its author has been our guest today, undercover investigator Daniel Walker. Daniel, I know it's a tough subject. We appreciate so much the work you've done on behalf of not only bringing uh, the, the perpetrators to justice, but bringing um, hope and eventually released to those victims of all of this. Thanks so much for taking some time to visit with us today. No, thank you. I mean, like I said, I think it's something that everyone can get engaged in at some level, and that's the exciting part of it and and does bring hope. So, no, thanks for having me. Thanks again. Daniel Walker, God in a Brothel, newly published by InterVarsity Press. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. It is a nation that occupies headlines on an ever-increasing basis. In fact, one of the major trading partners with the United States, particularly for technology. We might be surprised to find out that almost anybody these days that calls a service center for information more than likely will have that telephone call answered in India. It also, to the San Francisco Bay Area, provides one of the largest numbers of folks coming to the United States to work in the technological field on HB1 visas. And yet, for as much as we know about the nation of India, it remains a continent of 1.2 million people shrouded in curiosity and mystery. Joining me today in studio is the president of Mission India, Dave Stravers. Dave, welcome to the conversation. Hey, it's great to be with you, Craig. India is an amazing continent. Uh, for anyone that has been there, it is a nation full of sights and sounds and everything from extreme poverty to extreme opulence, thinking of things like uh, the Taj Mahal, for example, and, and, and a nation that perhaps more than anything is changing more radically on a day-by-day basis than perhaps any other nation in the world. Why is that? Well, no one knows exactly why. But uh, certainly when India came into the international economy in the early 1990s, uh, that was part of the big social change that started happening in the country. And what we've noticed, those of us who have been traveling the last 30 years in India noticed that at the same time the Holy Spirit was doing some remarkable things with the Indian people generally who for centuries have been very resistant to almost any kind of gospel witness outside of just a few small pockets of Christians in India. And now, for the first time, are are open as they have never been open since the coming of Christ. So the explosion that we've seen there has not only been economic and technological, but most certainly spiritual. And it's interesting because it's a bit of a dichotomy. India is probably one of the most spiritual nations on earth, and yet not predisposed towards spiritual things, much as we would think of it in a Christian context. Yes, Indian Indians are very spiritually minded. They're very sensitive to the invisible uh, powers around them in uh, in ways that many other Asians, in fact, and certainly Westerners are not. And actually, Indian believers, when they come to Christ, also uh, bring with them some just remarkable spiritual gifts. Uh, Indians know how to pray like no one else that I've ever met around the world. And so, um, actually, all Indians pray, 
uh, people will tell you every Indian, well, maybe there's an exception here or there, but there's 175 million Muslims that do their prayers, and there's uh, almost 1 billion Hindus who pray every day to one god or another of the millions of gods that they claim. So when when the gospel comes to this place, you don't have to convince Indians that God is real. The question is, which God? Who's God? Uh, and who is this Jesus that you're talking about? Let's speak to that point for a moment, Dave, because I can see, as many are familiar with, bringing the gospel into an area where there is a spiritual vacuum. For example, we saw a tremendous thrust into evangelism in places like the former Soviet Union, following right. the fall of the Iron Curtain, late 1980s, I think, Romania the first to fall, and then we know it kind of went like dominoes. Certainly China has been an interesting example of that, into which we can bring the good news of Christ into a spiritual vacuum. But here, you don't have a spiritual vacuum in India. You really have sort of this this mishmash, uh, claiming more than 330 million gods, and it isn't unusual to go to any community and find a Hindu temple there where there might be at least locally 10, 20, 30, 40 different gods. How challenging is that in terms of them bringing in the news of yet, in this case, another god from an Hindu perspective? Well, uh, actually, when it's one Indian witnessing to another Indian, it's not challenging at all. It's very easy at this point. Uh, that's one thing that, that, that God has been doing in India. Uh, someone will say, well, uh, they get to know a Christian, and they talk about their needs, and the Christian will say, well, we pray to Jesus, and the Indian will say, well, how do you do that? Uh, there's a genuine curiosity on the part of most Indians regarding that. And so prayer to Jesus actually is perhaps the number one evangelistic tool in India. Mm. There's constant power encounters. Now, there's not a spiritual vacuum, but there is great turmoil and I would even say despair, a kind of hopelessness because of uh, the, you might say, the theology or the beliefs that most Indians have grown up with regarding uh, just the the hopelessness of, of of improving their lives somehow. You know, the teaching of karma and reincarnation, are really those beliefs have to do with no change. And from a spiritual standpoint, too, isn't it a, a new concept from a Christian perspective in that the vast majority of gods that they would worship in India, there is a sense of doing so out of fear. Uh, in fact, I think the term kowtowing, uh, has Indian roots and in talking about a sense of wanting yeah. to appease the gods. So now when you interject into the conversation, this other god, who isn't a god that comes to bring a message of fear, but rather a one that brings hope and forgiveness and personal relationship, yeah. these have to be fairly mind-boggling new concepts then. It is mind-boggling for an Indian to say, this god, Jesus, who created the world, came to love us, to give himself up for us, to sacrifice himself for us, and to grant us a gift of eternal life. This is mind-boggling. It's too good to believe at first. And uh, praying to this living God and receiving answers, powerful answers to prayer to this living God who loves you, uh, this is very compelling. And that's why uh, there are literally millions of Indians coming to Christ every year right now. Where do you see some of the most significant growth? We've seen examples of cases where not just Western-style democracy, but Western-style economics comes in. 
people get a taste for technology and a better life, and so they sometimes get absorbed by a sense of consumerism. Has much of that happened with the the economic changes in India? Uh, the vast majority of Indians, of course, are we would consider to be incredibly poor. Uh, 350 million who earn less than the absolute poverty line, dollar twenty-five a day, and 900 million who earn less than $2.50 a day. If you earn $3 a day in India, you're considered middle class. So in a country where uh, the cost of food, uh, medicine, clothing, uh, it's less than here, but not that much less than here. So uh, many Indians will spend more than half of their daily income just on food, just to try to keep body and soul together. So uh, health needs, uh, just basic physical needs are are incredibly intense for Indians. And then there is uh, the social needs. Um, how do I put this nicely? Uh, there's con- constant conflict in Indian families, in Indian communities, conflict between castes, conflict between genders. There is extreme oppression of women, uh, the plight of women in India, uh, uh, we're only just beginning to see the tip of the iceberg with the stories we've heard about the rapes of women, uh, the infanticide of uh, newborn baby girls. Uh, young girls are not highly valued, and um, men beat their wives, and so many women actually resort to suicide because they live lives of, of quiet, hopeless despair. So the, the the social needs and the physical needs are just so intense. When a Christian comes and says, there's a God who loves you, who cares about this, who can actually deliver you from this despair, uh, that is a very attractive message. Pretty fertile soil. So we're talking then of the economic and technological growth that's happened in India over the last decade and a half, two decades. Much of that then has really just touched the top tier, the top fifth of the population. So we're still looking at a nation that economically at its core remains in pretty dire straits. Yes, and you have uh, consumer price index inflation has been hovered around 10% for the last 10 years. Food inflation has hovered around 20% for the last 10 years. Per annum. Per annum. Wow. If you are in a high-tech industry and your salary is going up 20% per year, and many people's salaries do go up 20% per year, uh, you can you can deal with that. But if you are a common laborer, either in a rural area or pulling a cart in the city and earning a dollar fifty a day and you've got three kids to support, it becomes impossible. Dave Stravers is with us today. He, of course, is the president of Mission India. We'll take a brief time out, come back to more of our visit as this edition of Lifeline continues. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. 
with in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com, salemnow.com.